Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find information about the congregation at fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS on Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. One of the most polarizing issues facing our country today is the issue of same-gender marriage. It is an emotionally charged issue, and it is also an issue of human rights and morality and how we bring those issues to the larger public sphere and make public policy on them. My guest to help us sort through some of these issues is Michael Perry. He is a professor of law at Emory University, and he is going to be at King College on February 4th as part of the Beekner Lecture Series, and he's going to be talking about his upcoming book, Human Rights in the Constitutional Law of the United States, and he's here today to talk with me and give a little preview of this conversation. Uh, professor Perry is the author of over 60 articles and 11 books, including Love and Power, The Role of Religion and Morality in American Politics, The Idea of Human Rights, We the People, The 14th Amendment and the Supreme Court, Under God, Religious Faith and Liberal Democracy, and Toward a Theory of Human Rights, Religion, Law, Courts. Professor Perry, welcome to Religion for Life. Thanks, John. I'm delighted to be with you. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're going to be talking about at King College? Well, I'm, I'm going to be talking um, about the internationally recognized human right to religious and moral freedom. Um, people tend to think about the right just in terms of religious freedom, but we can talk about this if you're interested. But it's actually not a right just to religious freedom, but a right to religious and moral freedom, this internationally recognized human right. Uh -huh. And uh, so I'm going to be uh, talking about that right. And I then I'm going to be pursuing the implications of that right for the extremely controversial issue of same-sex marriage. In particular, I'm going to be thinking with my audiences about the question whether it is consistent with the right for states to deny access to civil marriage to same-sex couples. And, and this right, when uh, when was it formed and how was it developed? Well, it, you the... You find the uh, initial articulation of the right in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted by the United Nations in 1948. But you find a more elaborate statement of the right in what's a treaty known as the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Um, about 167 countries are parties to this covenant, 167 countries out of the 193 countries in the world, members of the United Nations. And the United States has actually been a party to this human rights treaty uh, since the summer of 1992, when the first President Bush uh, persuaded the Senate to ratify the treaty in the summer of 1992, right before the uh, election in which he was defeated by Bill Clinton. Um, so the, if you read the right, the, it's Article 18 of the International Covenant, it's very clear that the right is a right both to religious and moral freedom. And just to make that very concrete for your audience, so for example, um, the Human Rights Committee, which is the uh, body that's charged with uh, in, uh, interpreting and enforcing the International Covenant, has said very clearly that states are required to provide some kind of uh, access to conscientious objection 
if they have a draft and that they can't just uh, provide conscientious objection for theists or for those who self-identify as religious in some conventional sense. They have to provide conscientious objection for those who have a fundamental moral opposition to war, mm -hmm. uh, even if even if they don't identify as theists, even if they don't identify uh, self-identify as religious. So in a number of uh, both on the on the very face of Article 18 and in authoritative uh, discussions of Article 18, there really is no serious controversy, but that it's not the internationally recognized human right is not a right just to religious freedom, but to religious and moral freedom. In other words, it protects now it doesn't protect absolutely, obviously, the uh, right of people to live their lives in accord with their religious and or moral convictions and commitments. And so how does this play out in, uh, in, in some various issues that we might have? Well, that, that, that's the, I think that's the thing that's probably going to be of greatest interest. The, the first thing I want to do, though, is I want to sketch uh, and elaborate, as I put it, this internationally recognized human right to religious and moral freedom. And then I want to bring it to bear on this great controversy in which we're engulfed, mm -hmm. uh, the controversy over same-sex marriage, gay marriage. Uh, and I want to think with the audiences about how, if we take this right seriously, and once we understand it, what are the implications of this right for a state's refusal, as I say, to deny same-sex couples access to civil marriage? So we, we can think about, gay, I call it gay marriage, that's the popular term, we can, we can think about gay marriage uh, of course, it's a controversial issue. We can think about it merely as a, as a policy question, a question that doesn't implicate fundamental human rights or constitutional, uh, constitutionally protected rights. I mean, many of our things that divide us politically don't implicate the Constitution. A decision either way on the issue is going to be constitutionally permissible. The decision either way on the issue is going to be permissible as a matter of fundamental human rights. But the issues can nonetheless be quite controversial, right? Mm -hmm. but, but there are issues that are more than merely policy controversies. There are issues that say, if we take seriously this fundamental constitutional principle or this fundamental human right, what does that mean? Uh, and that, that's a different discussion. You move beyond policy, merely policy, to the question of whether the policy that we stand behind is consistent with the fundamental human right or the fundamental constitutional protection. And um, the fundamental human right, then, is, is, is there a sense in which that's real? Or is that something we're still kind of, um, uh, well, I mean, is, that, is there a really a reality of the universe that this fundamental human right, you can only get there almost religiously, can't you? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a deep question and a very long discussion. Let, let me say that it's real in this sense, John, that... The Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, and, more concretely, this treaty, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, they are real. There are parties who that have there, – there are countries that have become parties to this International Covenant, this treaty. Over 80 percent of the countries of the world, as I say, including the United States. And there – these these this human rights treaty specifies certain human rights – a less fancy term, it specifies certain rules of conduct for government, certain rules of conduct about 
a punishment when punishment crosses the line? Is it cruel and human and degrading? Certain rules about freedom of speech, uh, certain rules of conduct for government regarding religious and moral freedom. So these are real. These are specified in the treaties. And there are countries that are parties to the treaties that have made commitments to not, not to pursue policies and try to implement policies that are inconsistent with these rules of conduct, these human rights that are specified in the treaties. So uh, we're not talking about any uh, thing in the, in the sky, uh, human, hum, like what is a human right in some kind of ethereal sense. We're talking about written rules of conduct to which the vast majority of the countries of the world have subscribed. And we're asking the question, what, and I'm asking the question at King College, here is this particular rule of conduct, the right, right to religious and moral freedom. Let me tell you as much about it as I can and that you might be interested in. And then let's ask what the bearing of this right is, if any, on this great controversy that engulfs us about same-sex marriage. And if you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my name is John Shuck, and my guest is Michael Perry. He's the Robert W. Woodruff Professor of Law at Emory University. He's the author of over 60 articles and 11 books, including Love and Power, The Role of Religion and Morality in American Politics in 1991, and uh, Constitutional Rights, Moral Controversy in the Supreme Court in 2009. And he's uh, with me via Skype. He's going to be the Beekner Lecturer at uh, King College. And we're talking about uh, moral and religious freedom and uh, the, the, the right to that and how that applies in certain cases, such as, for example, uh, same-sex marriage. I kind of wonder in terms of uh, just a basic question of, of what the role of religion in, in the public sphere, if it should have any at all. I mean, I wonder, I'm, I'm a minister, and, but is there any real difference between Reverend John Shuck and John Shuck when I try to make an argument uh, regarding uh, that's a great question, John. And, it, and actually, it is a, not only a great question, it's a very relevant question um, in ways I'll try re- relevant, that is, to the bearing of the right to religious and moral freedom on the same-sex marriage controversy. And I'll try to draw those connections when I speak to um, the audiences at King College. Let me, let me just give you uh, an example. Obviously, if someone uh, were to pass a law um, that... The, if the, the let's say a coercive law, in other words, a law that forbids people to do something, and the only rationale for the law, the only rationale for the law that made any sense at all, was a theological rationale. Uh, so that you know we believe that it is God's will that such and such is the case, or my church believes that such and such is the case. Well, in the United States, we think that if you're telling someone what they may not do, or you're telling someone what they must do, and the only basis for your telling them that is that it's the position of your church or your theology, we think that's, in effect, forcing someone else to live according to a religion that they don't accept, mm-hmm. a religion that they uh, reject. So in, in that sense... It, we In the United States, we do not believe, and in fact our Constitution uh, is understood to prevent, we do not believe that government can force people to live their lives according to someone else's religion. Now, obviously, there are going to be many laws that tell us what we must do or may not do that may have a religious rationale, laws against murder, um, but they also have 
widespread rationale that people of all faiths or no faiths can embrace and do embrace. Mm-hmm. So forcing people to live by those laws uh, make good sense. It's not forcing someone to live by a law that, that that is to say to live according to someone else's religion, even if there's a religious rationale for that law. And it's not, it's not forcing someone to live according to someone else's religion because there are, are, are ration, there's a rationale or rationales for the law that people of all faiths or no faith can embrace. So the, the, the serious question is whether it is consistent with the right to religious and moral freedom, a related question, whether it's consistent with our American constitutional commitment to freedom of religion, for coercive laws to be based on uh, theological or religious rationales. And, and by based on, I mean for laws for which there is no further, broader rationale that people of all faiths or no faith could embrace. And so, for example, in the issue of same-sex marriage, uh, simply saying, well, uh, it's against uh, God or against the Bible would not stand up in terms well, of a reason. The, the, the issue of gay marriage is, is uh, a little more complicated than that because, because we're, uh, at first you'd have to explain why it is that the state's denial of access to uh, civil marriage to same-sex couples is a coercive law. Um, It's certainly not coercive in the sense that it's telling someone they have to do something that they don't want to do, but it's coercive in the sense that it's denying them the opportunity to live their lives according to their own moral or could be religious, religious and or moral convictions and commitments. It's denying them the opportunity uh, to, to benefit from the, 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 uh, in the way the state permits other couples to benefit from this being assimilated to this institution of civil, civil marriage. And so the question is um, whether there is a non-religious, non-theological rationale for this policy. Now, where I live, I teach at Emory University in Atlanta, where I live, it seems that there are many people who oppose same-sex marriage on a biblically based, uh, on the basis of the Bible. Mm-hmm. This is contrary to God's will. This is contrary to the Bible. Well, if, if that were the only rationale for uh, the opposing the state granting access to civil marriage to same-sex couples, that would be deeply problematic because you'd be essentially saying that you want people to be forced to live their lives or prevent them from living their lives because of your religion. And that doesn't sound like religious freedom. Mm -hmm. But in the case of gay marriage, the perhaps the principle, not in Georgia, but in the United States, the principal institutional uh, religious opponent of same-sex marriage is the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And uh, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops their opposition to same-sex marriage is not a biblical rationale. It's not like a Southern Protestant rationale. Their opposition to same-sex marriage is based on secular, non-religious reasoning. Um, well, it'd be t- tedious for me to, to tell you exactly what the reasoning is, although I will be thinking about this with my audiences at King College. But therefore, the question with respect to the position of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops is is not is their rationale religious and therefore a problematic rationale uh, under the human right to religious and moral freedom? It's not a religious rationale; it's a moral rationale. 
then the question becomes more interesting. No one denies that the state, even under the right to religious uh, and moral freedom, has the right to enact laws in pursuit of the public morals, the public health, the public order, the public safety, the public morals. The question is, uh, a law to enforce the public morals is one thing. A law to enforce sectarian morality is something else. So let me give you an example. Back in the late 50s and early 60s, the states of uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut had coercive laws on the books against the sale and distribution uh, and use of contraceptives, even contraceptives by married couples. And uh, the Archbishop, Cardinal Archbishop of Boston, was trying to decide whether to resist this move in Massachusetts, uh, it was also happening in Connecticut, to take these laws off the books. And the great American Jesuit, John Courtney Murray, who was so influential at the Second Vatican Council several years later, uh, wrote a memo to Cardinal Cushing in Boston and said to Cardinal Cushing in his memo, you know, this may be a position of us Catholics about the immorality of the use of contraceptives, even by married couples, but we can't say that that in, in enforcing this position, we'd be enforcing the public morals because too many people of good faith and too many other religions don't agree with us, us about this. So he recommended in this private now public memo to Cardinal Cushing that he not resist the uh, taking these, these laws off the books. Well, that, a way of understanding that is that uh, John Courtney Murray, Father Murray, understood the difference between laws that are realistically portrayed as efforts to pursue and protect the public morals as distinct from laws that are efforts to pursue and protect a sectarian morality. Now, obviously, people can disagree about whether a particular position is a, uh, a on the public moral side of the line or the sectarian morals side of the line. Um, contraception is an easy case. Uh, Father Murray was right back in the late 50s, early 60s. That's a sectarian moral position. Even if it's the Catholic Church's position, that doesn't mean that it's not a sectarian position. Now, as it happens, the position of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops with respect to gay marriage is based on precisely the same rationale, the same morality of sexuality that their opposition to contraception is based on. So it raises, and, and I can go into that, I will go into that at King College, so it raises the interesting question of whether this non-religious, as I've said, unlike the Southern Protestants, whether this non-religious opposition to uh, same-sex marriage on the part of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops is nonetheless illegitimate under the right to religious and moral freedom because it's not fairly characterized as a, a policy, the policy of excluding same-sex couples from civil marriage, not fairly characterized as a policy in pursuit of the public morals, rather it's a policy that's protecting a sectarian morality. So either you, you have you two possible major rationales for excluding same-sex couples from civil marriage. One is the very widespread, biblically-based rationale, which is very widespread, but nonetheless uh, very problematic in terms of forcing people to live according to a religion they reject. Or you have this other possible rationale, the rationale of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is not a religious rationale. It's a secular rationale, but nonetheless, it's very possibly the case that it's a sectarian secular rationale, the kind of rationale that Father Murray 
was uh, was explaining to uh, to Cardinal Cushing back in the late 50s. Because uh, the rationale is, is basically, I think, uh, is that marriage doesn't count unless you're uh, procreating. You, you got it, John. I'm impressed by your, your familiarity with that uh, that rationale. The, the, um, the it, it, it says that any sexual activity is immoral unless it's inherently, quote, inherently procreative. And that's why even a married couple that uses contraceptives, that's not inherently procreative sexual conduct. So it's immoral. Uh, any kind of uh, sexual intimacy between a man and a woman, even a married man and a woman, uh, other than uh, conventional intercourse is uh, so oral intercourse, for example, um, that, that is immoral, even between a man and a woman in a marriage, because it's not inherently procreative. And that's the basis. It's not that the Catholic bishops are opposed to homosexual sexual intimacy. Specifically, they're opposed to any sexual intimacy that's not, quote, inherently uh, procreative. And, and I think Father Murray understood well that that's a sectarian morality, even if the Catholics are right to insist on that position. He was right to insist to to point out to Cardinal Cushing that's a sectarian morality. And so to the extent that is the morality, that's the secular morality that the bishops press in support of their policy position, then we've got a problem. It doesn't sound like that's going to hold too much water. Uh, my guest is Michael Perry, Robert Woodruff Professor of Law at Emory University. He's going to be speaking at King College on these important issues of uh, religious and moral freedom uh, on February 4th at the Bristol Public Library. And he is my guest via Skype on Religion for Life. Uh, is there any secular argument? What's the best one that you could imagine against same-sex right. marriage? Right. There, there are two um, arguments, and they're the the the, um, the good thing about the both arguments in support of the position that states uh, should continue to exclude same-sex couples from civil marriage. The two arguments, they're both secular arguments. So the problem is not that they're religious. Uh, and the uh, concerns that the arguments advance are very important concerns. One is that if you grant same-sex couples access to civil marriage, that is going to somehow deserve or, or hurt, uh, be subversive of the health of conventional marriage, of heterosexual marriage. The second argument is that if you grant same-sex couples access to civil marriage, that is that is going to be very harmful to the welfare of children. So neither one of those arguments is religious, and certainly being concerned about the health of uh, heterosexual marriage and the welfare of children, those are extremely legitimate government objectives, compelling government objectives. The serious question is whether it's even plausible to believe that granting same-sex couples access to civil marriage is going to do anything to harm or subvert the institution of uh, heterosexual marriage or do anything to harm the welfare of children. There are many uh, same-sex couples now, of course, who are raising children, and arguably the arguments are made the welfare of those children is going to be much better if uh, their parents are permitted to, to live in uh, legally protected uh, institutions, not only protected, but institutions that uh, involve many responsibilities that redound to the benefit of the children. Well, one final question on, on this topic, then. Uh, some um, religious people have objected that if we pass or if we allow for same-sex marriage, that that hurts their religious freedom. Is there any argument about that? I, I it, Well, it, 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 you can imagine a world uh, in which the state was saying, you, we're not only, we are not only going to grant access to civil marriage to same-sex couples, we're going to force the churches to perform these marriages, to, to give an extreme example 
So you could imagine a world like that, but I'm not aware of any proposal uh, that anyone is suggesting. Uh, and, and actually, those who are worried about their religious freedom being somehow compromised if the state grants access to civil marriage to same-sex couples, I don't think they're worried about anything that extreme. They're, they're worried about uh, more subtle uh, intrusions on their freedom. For example, um, maybe you'll be a business owner. You'll be a wedding photographer. Um, and the law of the state will insist you not discriminate in your business against uh, anyone on the basis of sexual orientation or race or religion or what have you. And so in a number of states, the laws try to provide conscience protections for those who have religious or moral opposition to same-sex marriage. And in fact, I am a signatory, along with uh, several other professors, of letters to legislators in states. In our letter, we say we see that you're about to uh, grant access to civil marriage to same-sex couples. Let us, let us tell you why, as you do so, it is important to take seriously religious and moral conscience and make sure that you protect people so that they're not forced to do things that violate their conscience. So there are ways of dealing with that those problems. So you think there, that there is a hopeful way that we, we can balance um, uh, religious views uh, and, and justice views and, well, in regards to this issue? I don't think there's any question but that we can. Now, whether we will in every state that makes a move in the direction of same-sex marriage is a separate question. You know, the issue is so polarizing. Uh, on one side, there are people who just don't want to take a step in the direction of same-sex marriage at all. And on the other side, there are people who are so have been so beleaguered for so long that now that they've got the political power to uh, get same-sex marriage recognized in their state, may not be sufficiently sensitive to the conscience protections that need to be, uh, you know, to accompany that that move. So I don't know what's going to happen politically um, in, in any given state, but it certainly can be done. Michael Perry, professor of law at Emory University, and he's going to be speaking in King College on February 4th, and he has been my guest on Religion for Life. Uh, professor Perry, thank you so much for spending time with me and, and for raising the level of the conversation. John, I'm delighted and honored to speak with you. Thanks so much myself. Michael Perry will be speaking at King College's Memorial Chapel February 4th at 9.15 in the morning, and again that same evening at 7 p.m. at the Bristol Public Library. Both events are open to the public and free to attend. For more information, uh, go to thebeekinerinstitute.org, or you can find information and links at religionforlife.com. This is Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find more information about our church at fpcelizabethton.org. More information about this program, including upcoming podcasts and link to links to other shows, as well as articles and sermons, can be found at religionforlife.com, religionforlife.com. Follow Religion for Life on Facebook, Twitter, and download podcasts from iTunes. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.